Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We are a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you guys along. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson. A little bit of a different setup for us today is everyone in the same room at our Franklin Studios, except me, of course, I'm video chatting in, but it feels like I'm there. We welcome in our host for the day. He is Mr. Michael Warren. How's it feel to be in the same room with a guest? Executive producer Aaron's there. It's like a real recording this time around. I'll tell you what, it's a little bit intimidating, though. I mean, I, I'm in the room with professionals. <laughs> Normally, if I'm away, you guys can laugh at me once we go, you know, once we stop recording and I get off the, the session. But here, I'm going to see live you can get the reactions in real time yeah i'm banking on them not being good ones also it's hot good oh, gracious yeah. is it hot here today yeah it, it is still warm in the south you just go outside and you just sweat that's why i ran back inside real quick <laughs> we've got a good guest lined up today he's got uh, a whole career full of stories and i'm sure he's got some uh, some interesting ones to yeah, share I, i'm excited about it uh, i've really enjoyed the last few episodes when, when you listen to them you find out that animals are, are really involved in this profession i think we're going to get some more <laughs> Uh, of that today. So, so what can you tell us about our guest today? Our guest today started his career with uh, the Tennessee State Parks in 1987 as a seasonal ranger, became a full-time ranger at the uh, Henry Horton State Park in 1989. In 1993, he was named assistant chief for law enforcement for the state system and promoted to chief ranger in 1997, a role he just retired from after over 25 years of service. Also, I thought this was really cool, the first ever Tennessee State Park ranger to graduate from the FBI National Academy. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Shane Petty today. How are you, sir? Hey, good morning. Thank you, brother. Glad to have you along. I'm excited about the day, man. It's a totally different perspective, a different part of law enforcement than, than I was involved in, I, I guess. And, and this is how we typically start off our episodes. How is it you came into this profession in the first place? Sure. First off, most folks don't think we are law enforcement. We go through the same academy, so we get all of that being a park ranger. But I am probably one of the most blessed persons in the world. I knew at the age of 11. This is what I wanted to do. I went to Henry Horton State Park on a family vacation and um, uh, I played all of the, uh, they had seasonal rangers that uh, have shuffleboard, ping pong games, all the events, got involved in all of them and walked out of the uh, conference lodge and met a horse mounted ranger and that changed my life. I went back to the hotel, told my mom, I know what I'll do for the rest of my life. I'll be a horse mountain ranger at Henry Horton State Park. And took me a little while to get through school and college, <laughs> but as soon as I did uh, in 1990, I became a horse mountain ranger at Henry Horton State Park. Now, for the benefit of our, our listeners, where is Henry Horton State Park? It, it is about an hour south of Nashville, kind of in Chapel Hill, Tennessee, between Columbia and Shelbyville. So, so you make this decision, and if you're like I was at that age, I, I had ideas about what I wanted to do, but I didn't know the path that I needed to take to get there. Sure. So tell me about the path that you had to take to become that, that ranger that you wanted to be. Okay. Well, most of it, like anything, it's education and experience. So the experience I ended up with, I got involved with the City of Columbia Parks and Rec, and I started as low as you can, cleaning bathrooms, picking up cigarette butts, then grab a weed eater, then grab a mower, and that was just over and over. So I did that all through high school and then through junior college. And as I work on my undergraduate at MTSU, uh, was able to finally get a track. I was kind of in a horse-mounted or horse science agricultural type area. 
but then I kind of blended over to a uh, um, two different role degree, one in outdoor recreation and one in ag science. Saw a flyer on the board. They were interviewing for seasonal rangers, jumped on board. Well, I think this is maybe a good time to, to talk about this. I knew I wanted to go into law enforcement because that's talked about on these episodes before. My grandpa was a Georgia State Patrolman, and that's how I got interested in it. Even when I was in college and I was a criminal justice major, I didn't know the number of law enforcement careers that were out there and available, the number of different agencies that were. I, I was very focused, you know, city police. And sure, then sure. you've got county sheriffs and then you've got state patrol and then you've got the FBI. But I didn't know about all these other things. So what would you tell somebody, a young kid that may be thinking about a career in law enforcement? How do they go about finding out about these? things? How, how do they go and, and learn? Because you don't know what you don't know. You know, the world now is at our fingertips with the computer and Google. And um, like the old cliche, you know, people say, you know, find something that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Well, that's what I love. I love the out of doors. Now, a lot of people, rangers over so many years would come up and interview us and say, I love to hunt and fish. Well, if you love to hunt and fish, you can rule that out because you're not going to get to do that because you're going to be out chasing people that are violating, you know, poaching, uh, hunting and fishing rules. So that doesn't happen too well. But, you know, is what is your love? My love was the out-of-doors natural resources, horses and dogs. You know, I didn't know that would come until later, but it was that natural resource that found out that led to the natural resource law enforcement end of it. That going into it, I was a recreation major, and I never even thought about the law enforcement side of it till they said, oh, by the way, you got to go to the police academy, and it was Okay. Whatever it takes to get there. Well, one would think, Brent, that with a recreation major, uh, that they would end up as a fireman instead, you know, because that, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of, I think that was a shot there. Yeah. Yeah. Just throwing it out I there. I think the guys in fire, they take shots a lot on this podcast. Uh, you know why, uh, you know why that is? Fire on uh, we're going to say easy target. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make it easy for us. You, you know, when we start in this career, we oftentimes have preconceived ideas about what the career is going to be like you know these ideas about what we're going to be doing how similar and how different were what you had in your mind and what ended up happening in your career well certainly no idea of all i wanted to be was a ranger i just wanted to ride a horse that was it and i would be fine (laughs) and still to this day i would be okay with it no idea of thinking about going into it the management side of it much less 25 years as the top law enforcement officer of our division being the chief ranger just kind of stumbled into that by just being a hard worker that's all it was it was not that smart i could just outwork anybody and the gentleman that was taking over as chief ranger we kind of did dual roles he was the superintendent park manager of henry horton and part-time chief ranger i was a part-time assistant chief and ranger at horton and we did that for a couple of years until we could get it off the ground unfortunately he uh, succumbed to cancer and then i interviewed for the job in, uh, around 1997 96 excuse me well i, I was fortunate uh, about a month or so ago uh, one of the partners that i have with virtual academy uh, is the Michigan Department of Natural Resources, their officers, yeah. their basic academy. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I walked into their basic academy classroom, it was nothing like the classroom I had at my police academy. Because when you walk in there, there, there was a bear. And on the back table, there were all these pelts, the different pelts that you might encounter when you're there. Sure, yeah. and, and I thought to myself, man, if I had to pass this, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> because, because, you know, the different types of fish. So you have the law enforcement component uh, of your training. 
What about the, the natural resources side of it? Just, just give me an idea of what that was like for you. Well, you know, my end of it was the recreation end. I just love anything outdoor rec. And that could be anything from sports to hiking. And, and that kind of ended up in, uh, for me, being the search and rescue end of it. A lot of people are more into the flora and fauna end of it. For me, I just really enjoyed the outdoor rec part of it. Um, you know, hardcore backpacking, hiking, those type things. Uh, wilderness type survival schools that we do a lot of to train because we get called on a search. You know, we may be out there looking for a lost person for two hours or two weeks, and you better be prepared to be in the out of doors for a while. All right. So, so let's get into the search and rescue side of things for a second. Sure. Would it be safe to say that when you're out there looking for somebody that probably more often than not, you're not looking for a bad guy, you're looking for a lost guy? Sure. Yes. On, on the search and rescue, a- absolutely. Absolutely. It's just somebody that, and it's usually not the prepared person that's hiking. It's the unprepared that didn't read the sign that said, didn't look at their clock and say, it's only two hours of daylight left and you just left on a 14 mile hiking trail. You're not going to make it back. I had a friend who shall remain nameless that was actually in the state of Tennessee. And uh, she may have been unprepared when she went out for her hike. And I think perhaps she had an over-reliance on the cell phone coverage yes. in some of these remote parts. You know, and that, that, that's your map. And uh, it was an overnight deal. Give me your best search and rescue story as far as a lost person. What you got for me? My best, probably not uh, with the greatest of ending. I've got some that are really good endings. And unfortunately, one of the reasons that I teach so much was the last search that I ended my career on. It was 417 days. That's a long search. Yeah, that's 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 over a year. A- absolutely. So, of course, it doesn't have a good ending to it. It was a, a gentleman out of Ohio that came came to a park, made the big mistake that so many people do. He went hiking by himself. Now, he had told his parents, you know, well, he was an older gentleman, 42 years old, but told his dad where he was going, left Ohio, came to the park, and he loved waterfalls. This was in early February. It's about 23 degrees that night when he got lost, and we uh, initiated the search immediately. A lot of rangers, and we threw a lot of resources and uh, just could not find him. I've probably spent 35 different searches looking for him over that whole year. And at the end of it, we ended up using some new technology to track his cell phone. And he had actually fallen off a cliff and uh, pulled an avalanche down on him and just covered his body up. And so it was very uh, unfortunate, uh, one of those situations. But it's also why we train as heavy as we do and we try to educate. You know, if one person would have been with him, they could have been in the same avalanche, but more than likely it was just a slip or a fall and they at least could have reported it. And we had about three this past year of that same situation where individuals by themselves got in trouble and it just took us a while to find them. So if you were going, if you were invited to to give a little speech to a group of people who are considering going out for a hike and you had to give the safety briefing like they do on airplanes, you know, they're very quick one. What are the main things that you, the main points that you want to get across to somebody to help ensure their safety? Mentioned the first one is have somebody with you, tell somebody where you're going, when you're going to be back. And then be prepared. We have a little uh, program we do called 10 Essentials. You know, it can be anything from water, fire starting, food, map and compass, flashlights, those type things, any type of survival, depending on what distance, you you know, the hiking trail that you're going on. And, And make sure you know that park, that trail, 
the distance, and uh, there's always going to be a park office. Get as much information as you can before you go out there and uh, take off. I know it's hard to believe it looking at me, Brent, but uh, I'm not an outdoorsy person. Okay. <laughs> but, but I also have a healthy respect for the outdoors. One of the things that I think, and it's not just in this realm, but in society, we see things on TV you know, for example, I don't watch a show, but there's a show out there, Naked and Afraid. Sure. And apparently they throw these people out into these really harsh environments and they take away all their clothes and they, they give very, very few tools to work with. And people see that. Well, it's like, well, man, if they can do that, well, I, I can do this too. <laughs> and I think it gives people a false sense of security. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked about during this search that you brought uh, a lot of resources to bear when you were trying to find that missing person, what are some of the resources that you guys use in your line of work when somebody does go missing? Well, one of the first things we will look at is technology, trying to ping their cell phone to uh, get a somewhat location. But that is a, that is a technology that sometimes works really well or it can be pretty tough. So we spent a lot of time that night getting some cell phone pings that weren't even close. Closest one was maybe a mile and a half away. You spend a lot of time working on that end of the investigative end of it. For me, uh, I'm a canine officer, so I responded that night with my canine, but I also sent the Tennessee Highway Patrol with their uh, aviation unit. And then there's a uh, nonprofit group, Stone Point, out of Murfreesboro that's a drone company. Uh, and uh, they came up and spent a quite a bit of time uh, with us with FLIR. So both of them flew that night. And, and then we had about 20 rangers out there during that night. And the biggest reason to push that much resource was the temperature. You know, it was, it was in a uh, creek area. So more than likely, the individual probably got wet. It's 23 degrees. Hypothermia is really going to get you pretty quick. So we really hustled. We probably used four or 500 people over the next uh, couple of weeks looking for this individual. Well, I guess now is a good time to bring this up. As we sit here recording today, we lost a couple of law enforcement officers in the state of Tennessee yesterday. They were part of uh, it was a, a Tennessee Highway Patrol helicopter that ended up crashing and, and killing the trooper pilot and also a deputy. I bring it up because, number one, we need to remember those folks. Absolutely. And number two, I bring it up because this profession can be incredibly dangerous. And oftentimes it's incredibly dangerous doing activities that we've done over and over and over again. The listeners that are in the profession, they know it, but I want the people who are listening to recognize that that aren't part of the profession to recognize, man, the men and women that do this job, they do an honorable thing, but they do it at risk to themselves. Oh, absolutely. Every day you walk out the door, you put on the badge, you put on the gun, you know, just getting in your vehicle. I mean, it's a risk for everybody, but this job really holds a lot of it. Your people are exposed to risks that I wasn't exposed to. I didn't run the risk of falling off a cliff or being buried in an avalanche. So, Or just the elements, you know, the, the weather, you know. The weather is one of those things that, that we can't control. And if you don't prepare for it properly, it'll eat you up. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that is one of the things, I mean, I've had to tell folks, I'm not going to send you in that area. You, you know, if you're not properly trained or equipped, we just can't, you know, send you in to try to rescue somebody. And then we've got to come in and rescue you, too. So because it's a compound compounding uh, effect yes, right there. Yes. 
At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. All right, so so you said you did canine. Sure. Tell me what the life is like as a canine handler. Well, uh, you know, it, uh, it didn't turn out to be what I thought or... In other words, I created a mess. Um, <laughs> my idea was um, what sparked this were a couple of searches I went on in 1993 and 94 in the Smoky Mountains. Of course, Smokies is a national federal park. I work for state parks. But when they would get a search for an individual that was uh, bigger than they could handle, they had the resources, they would call in us. And so in 1993, I was on a search for a 13-year-old kid, and we uh, unfortunately, he had fallen to his death. And then the following year, I was actually on the team, was actually one of the individuals that found a 9-year-old kid, found him alive after five days. Wow. And that just changed my life. Now, both of them changed it because the hardest thing in one of those searches is to look at the parents, to look at the mom's eyes. You know, have you found anything? And that's crushing. The most moving thing I've ever done in my life was return that little boy to his mom. She started crying. I started crying. The whole group started crying. And I knew that was my thing. But the individual that was in charge of that search, he he worked for TEMA, Tennessee Emergency Management Agency, and he was a retired FBI agent. But he was also a bloodhound handler. I wanted to, what is my niche within? What is my expertise? And it became bloodhounds. And so as I trained and I trained, got a pup, man, I had her ready to go, and I messed up, and I spoke to a friend who was in highway patrolman, and I said, hey, I'm tired of chasing my kids around the you know neighborhood, around the park. If you get somebody that runs from you, you know, they're drunk, they don't have a driver's license, they run in the woods, you know who they are, you can get them tomorrow, how about let me chase them? And I called them in five minutes, and the next <laughs> night, a trooper called me, and I called them in a few more minutes. And before I knew it, I was really the only game in town in in southern middle Tennessee. And I just had every sheriff's department, city, um, highway, uh, state officers calling me. And I missed a lot of sleep in my career and a lot of scars (laughs) on my on my body from with a bloodhound. You're tethered to the dog. 10, 15, 20 foot lead. Those dogs, they don't come back to you. They're just hard driving dogs. They're not what you see on the Beverly Hillbillies or Hee Haw. They don't just sit there. And now an older dog does, but not the young one. <laughs> and so if they decide to run off the creek bank, you're going to. And you just better learn how to slide pretty well. Uh, if they go through the briar bush, you have two options go through it with them, drop the lead and catch it on the other side and you better catch it on the other side or the dog's gone so it ended up uh i've captured about 285 criminals in my career and that is not what i designed it for it was to find the little lost kids in the parks and i was able to do that but as i said i created this mess and i'm a person that just couldn't say no i had a resource that if a community needed I was going to be there. The idea came from a nine-year-old boy that was rescued, ended up with calls in the middle of the night because somebody ran on a traffic stop. 
That, that's it. That's how it started. Yeah. <laughs> the best laid plans, they say, right? Yes. <laughs> I just didn't think this thing through. Well. <laughs> well, it's one of those things you don't know what you don't know, right? You're right. Then you made the mistake, perhaps, of you know talking to a trooper. That got it. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't keep secrets very well. Sure. Just saying that. At some point, do, doing the research, somehow you became involved in a search for a dirt bag uh, by, by the name of Parker Ray Elliott. Yes. How did you come to be involved? Well, first of all, what, what were you searching for him for, and how did you become to be involved in that search? Sure. Parker Ray Elliott, gentleman in uh, um, Murray County, he had murdered his estranged uh, wife and also uh, murdered his 17-year-old daughter and shot his son, I think, seven times, if I remember. The son did survive. And he fled from the scene. Uh, nobody really knew at the time, you know, who had done this uh, just heinous crime and didn't know if he'd left on foot or in a vehicle. No eyewitnesses at all. And so uh, I was brought in um, by request of the Murray County Sheriff's Department to assist with a search in the area. This is down close to Cullioka area. And we searched pretty, pretty long that night and was able to determine I couldn't pick up a scent. So we were pretty positive at that time. He had left in a vehicle, and this was a search. I think it went on for five days. So he had actually fled in his vehicle to another area, a very rugged area in uh, southern Middle Tennessee, right on the Murray-Lawrence County line, right in there, and uh, parked his truck on the side of the road and pulled a tarp over it and ran out in the woods and stayed out there for about four days. For our listeners, I think it's important, important to point out that when you watch a movie, for in this example right here, you watch someone be murdered, you see that the guy leaves in a car. You've got that information, but you roll up on the scene and you have to eliminate that possibility. You have yes. to eliminate the possibility that they left on foot. And all those things take time. Sure. And they take resources. And, and so before I forget, because, you know, I'm old, how long is it reasonable to believe that your dog can search straight without needing some type of break? Well, I went through three dogs on this search so you know a lot of it depends on i'd have to go back to my memory on what month i know it was 2004 i think it was about september like now we're in late august you go out trying to chase somebody today you or the dog is not going to last very long so going through about five days of this i went through three dogs just they you know just just spent you know trying to work them all day long so most of it depends, just like with humans, is, you know, how, how hydrated you can keep them and what is that humidity and temperature going to be. And, and that becomes something that, that's difficult for a handler. Sure. Because what you're searching for matters. Well, yeah. Whether it's the lost nine-year-old kid or it's the murder suspect, what you're doing is good, but you still have that limitation of the animal and your limitation. Sure. And really that limitation is... Really, the only reason I caught him, I had on on the day we found him, he had been found to have hidden in a uh, small shack on the owner's land, and they were able to find I, I forget maybe some uh, credit cards or things that led to him, some spent uh, shells and some food, and so I started a new trail with a new dog from that area, and we worked for about three and a half hours looking for him, and, and this is some pretty rugged area still in Middle Tennessee. You don't think there's a lot of hills, but down in there there's still a lot of hills and gullies after about four hours just came spent and i told the sheriff i said look i got to take a break you know i've got to cool the dog down i got to get hydrated and about that time i was i'm really disappointed in whoever did this some homeowners said they saw him behind their house said he was trying to kick in the door and 
at that point, the Tennessee Highway Patrol came in with their canine. And, man, I was, you know, I was just so sad. And I was all good friends with them. But, you know, I'd spent a lot. I had a lot of boot leather out through, there. I've gone yes. through three dogs and a whole lot of water right here. I want to be involved in this. Right. But, you know, I, I was spent. So I had to take some break. Well, they took off in this rugged area and it ended up being a hoax. Somebody just made it up, unfortunately, to throw off law enforcement. And you just would never in your mind think that would happen, especially for a murder suspect that had done this to his whole family. So about 30, 45 minutes into that, we got another call that some young kids had seen him and probably about three or four miles away from where we were. So as we ventured over there, you could tell once you interviewed the kids, they were scared. They identified what we believed was pretty pretty accurate information and they said he ran right through a gate I put my dog in there and she immediately lit up so I knew I had him took off down a little logging road and I could see um, a footprint in the mud but it was in the water and it's still swirling so it is very minutes fresh so I knew we had him I knew by the dog working she was working a good hard scent and uh, just kept on and this is where things and I don't really want to make light of how this ended up but in working cases like this if you don't add a little humor in there you'll, you'll lose your mind it's a coping mechanism a- absolutely but I've used this to teach for years and years so as I came around this little logging road Tennessee Highway Patrol helicopter was above me so he was kind of my backup there was SWAT team from Murray County that was running down the edge of the fence trying to get across but as I came around this corner there were three cows that were just blowing and snorting into this one thicket well I knew from uh, you know my ag background you know they should have been worried about me but they weren't man they were just almost charging this bush and so I zoned in on that bush and as soon as I did I could see the individual hiding And really what he was doing, he couldn't see or hear me because he was fixated on the helicopter. And and really what happened that day, the helicopter probably, he either saved my life or the individual's life because, you know, unfortunately, this is a uh, individual that's killed his whole family. He certainly doesn't have any remorse, you know, in killing me. And it's not that I wanted to, you know, take his life either, but, you know, it it was going to be a pretty good standoff. But luckily, he was fixated on the helicopter. He was maneuvering around uh, the base of a tree, and I was able to get good close proximity to him, loud verbal commands, and uh, took him into custody. Well, he kind of ran about 10 or 15 feet and jumped in some bushes, but with good loud verbal commands, he finally gave up. Ended up, we were able to take him into custody without incident. I just got to point out, second time in recent weeks, cows came into the story, brother. You know, <laughs> it's yeah. all like you said, all sorts of wildlife. I'm telling well, you, now, I'm just saying. I mean, we had we had bears, and now we got cows. It's fantastic. Well, now it, it gets it gets better or worse. So, <laughs> um, so I get back to the command center, and everybody's wanting to know how the story went down. And I'm telling it just as I was telling you. And I didn't realize there was a newspaper reporter there and recorded everything. Next day or two, it came out in the local paper, but it went AP. So it went all over the United States. And uh, so this went to every paper in the country. It went through the USA Today. And the caption was, Cows Capture Murder Suspect. (laughs) I've been walking for five days, and the cows get the credit for what's going on here. So it made the National Enquirer magazine. 
Um, about a year later, the lead detective, good friend of mine, he had moved on to another sheriff's department. He sent me a package in the mail. I said, what is this? I opened it up, and it's a book. And there's three cows on the front of it. I said, what in the world? I opened it up, and there's a post-it note. And he says, see Chapter 12. And it's bovine criminology as told by Chief Ranger Shane Petty. And it's my story. <laughs> so there's a guy out there making money, selling books. For me, not, you know, keeping my mouth shut. Uh, uh. <laughs> CNN wanted to interview me. Uh, no. And yes, yes, uh, that was. You that know, was we just had no. Monty Blue on not too long ago, and he was talking about how he was roping a cow, and he got national exposure, too. It's crazy how <laughs> cows play a big part. No. Sure, sure. Well, see, see, I had no idea they played such an intricate role in law enforcement. Well, and and actually, when I teach, you know, uh, I teach a lot of manhunt class and search and rescue, and we will teach that that if you have animals or dogs that are barking, you know, in certain areas at night, you, you know, pay attention to them. Uh, I mean, they're letting you know. Remember Monty's story. It was the the turkey hen. He said, you know, because the guy thought he was safe because the turkey wasn't flying away or running away. And I'm telling you, and that's a great point, though. When you're talking to young officers, getting them to focus on, and we say it all the time, the totality of the circumstances. Understanding the context of what's going on can have a profound impact on how that situation plays out. Sure. Easiest, simplest thing, especially this time of year. A spider web. If I'm trailing somebody with my dog, and I think my dog's trailing somebody, but I keep hitting spider webs, the dog must be on an animal. Because if it was a human, they would have already broken all those spider webs. Or vice versa. If I'm trailing what I think is somebody with a dog, I see all these broken spider webs, I know I'm onto this individual. So it, it is a lot of small things that you put together. In. And Brent, that's why we talk to experts. Because that, yeah. that's something right there. I mean, I did this job for 24 years, and, and, and I never would have considered the, the spider web thing. You have to use the resources that are available, yeah. It, the cues are amazing. But I also want to throw something, and this was something I learned early in my career because I did it wrong. My agency, the canine, were out tracking somebody. We always had an officer with the canine officer. After it was over, the canine officer got on to me because my focus was on the dog. And I remember him very clearly saying, listen, as the handler, my focus is on That's the dog. That's the handler's job. Your job is to protect that handler. Right. Yeah. But then you can't do that if you're watching the dog. A- absolutely. That, that takes discipline and it takes training. It, it does. It does. A- and so I, I will throw it out to you as a law enforcement trainer. I think that perhaps we need to do a better job of training the people providing security for canines. Because oftentimes it's just who happens to be there. Hey, who's the youngest person you're going on a track and is going through uh, briars and stuff like that? Who's the young, who's the lowest in seniority? Okay, it's you. You go with them and they don't know what they're doing. And yes. that's a skill job. Sure. In the middle of the night, I've done that many times saying, hey guys, here's what's going on. If the dog does this, if you hear me, but your job is to be my eyes out forward. I'm looking at the dog. I'm not looking what's up front. You've got to protect me. Do not look at the dog. You watch. You'll know by my cues, my whatever vocally I say, but your job is to be my eyes and ears out there because I'm just trying to read that dog. And it's like at a ballpark, the security personnel, the game's going on on the field, but where's their focus? It's up into the crowd because that's where their responsibility is. Let's talk about state parks for a second. Sure. How many state parks? You don't have to give me an exact number. How many state parks are in the state of Tennessee? We've got 56. 56. That's a lot of jurisdictions, almost individual jurisdictions. Yes, that's exactly what they are, yes. How does the state allocate resources from a law enforcement perspective to those parks? 
Well, we have law enforcement officers on every part. Now, when I say we say a state park, we also have about 88 natural areas. For me, the definition of a natural area, it's a park without any facilities or people. So lots of times it's just a short hiking trail, could be a longer hiking trail, and a waterfall or some type of beautiful vista, but it doesn't have any personnel working there. So on every state park, we have rangers, commissioned rangers that are assigned there, but uh, they may also be requested to go assist at a natural area if there's an event. My job as chief rangers, I was overall all of the uh, 250 rangers, so I would, and in charge of special operations. So if we had a fire, drowning, search and rescue, my job is to send the forces in to where it may be. And, you know, it could be a state or, as we talked earlier, could be a federal park or to assist city and county officers. You said we had a drowning. So it seems, in my limited experience, that those that work in natural resources, park rangers, that they have to be a little bit more varied in the terrain that they have to operate in, operating in a water environment. Sure. That brings its own issues and dangers. Yes. By the way, what, what what's the biggest danger on the water? It's usually going to be um, floods, you know, rapid water. And we, we've seen that here in uh, eastern Kentucky and the West Virginia a- area recently. And, and I don't think people understand the power of water. But you're working in varied seasons. Sure. So the, sure. We, the weather changes quickly. In Michigan, we have this place called the Upper Peninsula. Uh, Brett, have you ever been to the Upper Peninsula, by the way? I've been up um, Sault Ste. Marie, yeah. You can imagine what it would be like being a DNR officer up in the Upper Peninsula during the winter. Oh, yeah, that's that's some cold temperatures up there. I mean, that's just all up freezing. For our listeners, Michigan built some prisons up there because, quite honestly, if you escape, there's nowhere to go. If it's winter, you're going to freeze to death. And if it's summer, the mosquitoes are going to eat you alive. Yeah. You guys have to operate in those things. Oh, sure. And you have to operate in hills. Yes. And you have to operate in flatlands. It seems like it takes a special person to be successful in that career path. Well, physical fitness is a big one because just as you said, you know, we um, one of the first things I would do every morning and then every night is I look at the weather and anticipate what if we have this tonight or tomorrow what's the weather going to be i mean that dictates everything being that prepared you know do you have your equipment ready to go but if are you physically 10-8 ready to go i mean because we don't get the opportunity just to step out of the vehicle and there we are we step out of the vehicle and we've got 14 miles to go to get to our individuals so especially in the smokies when they would call us in we would go in for two or three days you know if you had to cover 15 miles and then search for somebody, well, by the time you got there, it'd be time to turn around and come back out. So when we would hike in, we would spend two, three hours searching, and then we would just spend the night out there in the woods. And that way, at first daylight, you're ready to search again. So if you're spending the night, that means that you've got the equipment to be able to provide cover, food, sure, I mean, all those sure. things. That that seems like that you would have to be physically fit. Yes, yes. And it kind of sounds like being in the infantry a little bit. It's very, very paramilitary. I mean, it really is. Uh, I mean, you go out there. I mean, my first big search that I uh, was in charge of, I left. Unfortunately, it was a drowning. I had left uh, for Fall Creek Falls State Park and told my wife I would be home pretty late. Came home 13 days later. Hmm. But what do you learn from a 13-day search that you weren't prepared for? for just about everything in 13 days because in 13 days everything can change you better have 13 pair of underwear <laughs> assuming that one wears underwear 
We'll just throw that out there. Someone I know. How about that? <laughs> but 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 the thing is, though, in 13 days, uh, the difference in temperature. Oh, we had about six inches of rain in those 13 days. So the floodwaters came up. So we didn't know if, you know, looking for an area, if the body had moved totally. Did it move 20 feet or 20 miles, which is a high probability with that much rain? So uh, that's I, why it took 13 days. I, I just find that that, that fascinating because when I went, when I'd go on patrol, I'd look at the weather and I could figure out, okay, what do I need to know for the next 12 hours or even 16 hours if I sure. get held over? But man, when you're talking about an indefinite amount of time, it's not to, even if you're searching for a bad guy, the danger isn't just from the bad guy. Sure. It's from all the stuff around you to kill you just as dead as the bad guy will in many cases. Absolutely. So if somebody were interested in a career as a park ranger, what advice would you give them today? Well, how can they start walking down that path to become that park ranger? Sure. Uh, you know, determine the um, job specs, you know, what expected of them for us. A lot of people get a little confused with us and here in Tennessee, Tennessee Wildlife Resources Agency. So they're our sister agency, and uh, they're more of the wildlife fisheries. Um, but both they and State Park uh, Minimum is a bachelor's degree. Theirs is a little more specific, being mainly wildlife management biology, where ours is more broadened. Uh, it can be criminal justice, it can be forestry, it can be business, because it is a business now. So determining the educational track and then the experience track, but always to job shadowing. Uh, my brother-in-law was a wildlife officer, and so I'm able to, of course, I'm going to argue, you know, somebody, no, you need to be a park ranger, not a wildlife officer, come on. But uh, those guys have a tough job. I mean, so many times they walk out in the woods by themselves, and everybody they're going out there has usually got a gun, and I'm like, who in their right mind would do that? You've you got to be a very well-honed, trained individual uh, on those type of situations. And so where a park ranger is designed more of a smaller acreage of track, you know, I mean, it could be 20,000 acres, but usually there's one officer per county in Tennessee. Some have uh, more than one, but um, they have a, lo a lot larger jurisdiction. But just knowing what the job entails, what is tough about it, you know, especially we talk about all the uh, natural disasters. I mean, it's a 24-7. For 25 years, I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week for any emergency that we had. Well, that brings up a good question for me is you recently retired. How are you taking that transition? Do you still feel that urge if some a call goes out and you're ready to go? You know, Now you have to change your mindset. It is very tough, believe yes. Um, I, I still volunteer with uh, Murray County. They're an um, emergency management agency on search and rescue, so I still got a canine. And uh, I'm still helping a couple of different agencies. I also am still a guest instructor with the Tennessee Law Enforcement Training Academy. So I'll actually be, this time tomorrow, I'll be teaching medical. 11, I'll teach um, man tracking. And we'll have, we actually teach two schools a year. And uh, we teach uh, basic man tracking in search and rescue operations. So still trying to, you know, pay it forward and uh, uh, help train other officers out there. And I've still got a little gas in the tank. I can't do it like I used to, but my, my mind lets me know, but my body reminds me pretty quick. So, uh, but I've also got nine grandkids. So uh, chasing them is just like chasing somebody through the woods. So it's not much different. <laughs> and in some cases, just as dangerous. It, yes, absolutely. I, I appreciate the fact that I don't know about you, Brent, but when I hear dedicated folks that have already done their time and now volunteering their time because they recognize what they're doing is that important. It warms my heart, for lack of a better phrase. And one thing that I like about Shane is that he is 
done everything as far as the the parks and rec job is concerned so he's never going to ask somebody else to do something that he hasn't already done himself and that's what makes a great leader and i i I appreciate the fact that you've done all that i also appreciate the fact you're willing to pass along your knowledge and skills to others because you know you're retired and you don't move as quick as you used to that's right but the need is still there so somebody has to fill that need and it's our responsibility as the old folks in the profession to equip the younger folks. Sure, sure, exactly. You know, somebody was there always opening the door for me and giving me this knowledge. The state put a lot of money in training and sending me to schools, and it's my turn to turn around and reciprocate that also. Well, as we're wrapping this up, I I just want to ask you this, because I I think, you know, I appreciate the job that, that you did your career, but I am really appreciative of the fact that there are people still coming into this profession right now. I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage. Sure to come into this profession right now, when you go and you teach at the academy and you look out at those young folks there, what what comes into your mind? What thoughts come into your head about the future of our profession? You you know, what what scares us is their longevity, how long they're going to work. They are just not sticking around. You know, they're putting in four or five, six years and they're jumping ship. And, And so for all of us as chiefs and training officers, you know, we're trying to how do you um, make the job more appealing? How do you make sure when they get in there, because their departments are putting a lot of time and effort in there, and, and you, you know they want them to stick around. And some of them will leave for better lucrative jobs. Some of them leave, they don't have a job lined up. They just realize, man, this is dangerous. This is tough to go out on protest and get called you know, every name under the book, and you're just out there trying to protect resources or protect people. It's it's a whole different world out there. So trying to get that mindset uh, of in there, and, and I will use some humor, but, you know, uh, I mean, with them, and, and of course, when I go to the police academy, I, you know, I'm still recruiting. I'm trying to grab them and bring them over to our house. So, uh, you know, if, if I can steal them from another agency, I didn't have to put them through the police academy and pay for it. <laughs> But um, I, I want to wait, wait. I believe there's a term for that. It's called poaching. Yeah, well, I'm that's pretty it. sure it's yes. frowned upon. Yes. <laughs> um, but every agency does. Yes, it, they so. do. But I will tell them, I'll say, look, guys, I had the greatest job in the world. I mean, for 30 years, they paid me to ride a horse and play with a dog. My goodness. For a young kid growing up, I mean, why in the world would you go work anywhere else? And it works a lot of times. I get a lot of folks come over and talk to me. All right. Did you ride a horse? Yes, yes. I uh, I was a horse mounted ranger for 30 years. I'm the only person to ride a horse in every state park. Really? Yes. I've put a lot I've spent more time with my horse than I have most individuals. Um, I, I've worked every event. You can imagine a lot of protest, every governor inauguration in my career, a lot of big events. You know, whenever a state park had a big event, I was there on the horse. I, I hate to bring up bad news, but uh, Michigan, we just lost uh, a special deputy that was on a horse working an event and, and uh, working a fair, if I'm not mistaken. She rode up on it, saw what was happening. And when she went to dismount, the horse got spooked and it threw her and she ended up dying from the injuries. And so it just goes back again. Sure. That, that, that this is a dangerous profession, but it's also an honorable profession. Absolutely. Absolutely. I thank you again for your career. I, I thank you for your dedication uh, to the, the good folks of the state of Tennessee, what you did made, made a difference and you continue to make a difference. And, and that's all we can ask for in life. Absolutely, man. Thank you all for having me. I am continually amazed at the quality of people that are in this profession. I'm not I'm not even amazed anymore because I see these people coming through and they're just uh, 
top-notch individual, salt of the earth, wanting to make a change, and we applaud him for that. The dedication that it takes to continue a search for a day or a week or a month or one of the cases we talked about today was over a year. That just takes some, some dedication that is often lacking in society today, but we see it over and over. And one thing we really didn't touch on is the impact it had on his family being away from, you know, his loved ones for a long time while he's out in a search. That's got to be taxing as well. And that's that's the, the, the unsung heroes in the, the profession right there are the family members that stay behind the wives, the husbands, the boyfriends, the girlfriends, the kids that cut the lawns, go to all the school activities, make sure the homework's done. Those are the people that are doing the hard work. It's good work, but it's still hard work. Yeah. And that's why uh, we, we try to bring their stories to you each and every week, because we think it's important to shine a light on these folks. And if you have a story that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at between the lines at virtualacademy.com. You can also go to our website. We will find all of our past episodes, all of our social media accounts, and all sorts of podcast providers where you can listen to past episodes as at between the lines with virtualacademy.com. Shane, thank you so much for coming in today and uh, making some time for us. Thanks. Appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs>